Good evening and welcome back to Editing Aloud. Thanks for joining us. And I have an interesting and unusual panel this evening um, in a week in which it's been quite a time for the insurance industry. And with us this evening is Ryan Woolley, who is the CEO of Insurance Claims Africa, which represents, Ryan, I think 500 tourism and hospitality industry operators in what's become quite a war with the insurance industry, which is has been refusing to pay out on business interruption claims. But you did have quite a significant victory this week, Ryan. Can you tell us about it? Yes, uh, there, there was definitely a victory this week. Um, the Cafe Chameleon case against one of the insurers, uh, HRC Guard Risk, where the judge categorically ruled in favor of Cafe Chameleon and said that uh, the lockdown regulations are a direct consequence of the COVID-19 outbreak and all those losses need to be paid for in full by the insurer. They also dismissed the argument that the insurer, that there was a systemic risk, that the insurer could not afford to pay these claims and that that should be brought into consideration. The judge said, um, you know, effectively poor underwriting is no excuse for the policy that you put and you must honor the debt that's that's arisen so basically um just take us back a step here ryan i mean the the the, the short-term insurance industry it's the sun times it was guard risk it might be a couple of the others you can tell us who's been willing and who's been unwilling but the short-term insurance industry has been refusing to pay out on claims um, for businesses in, in, in the sector which have been, which basically had to shut down because of the lockdown and therefore, th but the, the industry has not denied that the business interruption clauses apply in this case. Correct. Essentially what there is, is there's two types of business interruption cover that these companies uh, provide. One is uh, vanilla, which is, you know, if, if you've had fire damage or some form of property damage, then you can then claim business interruption cover to pay for and fund all of your running costs, your salaries and wages, your um, water and electricity, and if you're lucky enough, some net profit. These insurers, um, you know, and they have all the usual suspects in terms of Hollard and Bright and Santum and Guard Risk and Old Mutual Insure, they decided to write a specific boutique product where they changed the wording and they said, you know what, we know the hospitality industry, we're gonna give them a very specific type of cover. We're gonna say that if there are these other causes that result in your business being affected, we will then provide you with business interruption cover. And those were, we're gonna cover you for, if there's a shark attack um, at your, you know, at the beach where your hotel is or your restaurant, and nobody wants to come to your hotel anymore or restaurant, or they close the beach, then they will pay for those losses. If there's a murder, you know, and uh, and it affects your uh, business or your trade, well, then we'll pay for that, you know, and the and the losses that follow. One of the clauses is an infectious, contagious, notifiable disease. Now, I make the point about notifiable is because they say the disease can't be something small. It can't be something insignificant. It must be notifiable. Must go through and warrant notification to government, health, or local health authorities where they will obviously contemplate restrictions, lockdown measures, and, you know, and quarantines. So, you know, for us, we, we've never bought the concept that the insurers say that we're not going to pay for these losses because the losses are not being driven by COVID-19 and the outbreak. They're being driven by the lockdown regulations of government. And for us, 
it just doesn't make any sense because, and we've seen now um, the judge in the case in Cape Town say equally it doesn't make any sense because without COVID-19 outbreak, you don't have the lockdown restrictions. So, um, so it's nice to have our view vindicated by a competent, well-respected judge in the Cape. Um, and, uh, and yes, so, so we think that it's a, it's a great step forward for the industry. Um, and uh, yes, that's pretty much sums up the position. So if you so if you had a shark attack, you wouldn't have to be having this battle. But if it's COVID, this is the major battle. But Lumkile Munda, I want to bring you in on the more sort of macroeconomic level because we've had the banks providing quite significant relief to their customers, business and individual. We've had landlords providing rental relief to to tenants, shops, and so on. Isn't it a bit odd and quite disturbing that the insurance industry is not honouring whatever relief it can provide to its customers, as it were? And what's the impact of that? Well, we shouldn't be surprised because that's really um, the challenge for some. The lack of a unified position around building a country and an inclusive economy is not shared by all. So everyone is fighting for a piece of the pie without putting South Africa's head, ensuring that in a pandemic and a crisis that we all rally together and bet for the same team. But the insurance industry basically sees itself as different from the rest of us who are doing we can to support and sustain businesses and individuals in the pandemic. So I'm not surprised. It's a typical South African behavior where it's a me-me culture uh, because uh, we failed as a society to build a social contract around building a better life for all. And in doing so, ensuring that it's not only me or my business, we we bet for South Africa and everyone has an opportunity to, to participate. Warren Thompson, could you make us the case from the insurer's side of it? I mean, do, do they have a case? Well, they must have a case, otherwise they would <laughs> not have declined to pay out. Thanks. Thanks, no, Hilary. I'm going to look like the Dr. Evil now. Um, somebody has to be. I wanted to ask Ryan, I mean, given, given the extent of the claims here, I mean, is one of the reasons potentially the insurers aren't paying is because it could be systemic. And this... It sounds like from what you've said, Ryan, that uh, the reinsurance, you know, it's one of those risks that, oh, yeah, we better make sure we've got this, this reinsured. Uh, is the case being that the, they might not have applied their minds to something like a pandemic uh, actually happening and resulting in widespread? I mean, it's, it really is unprecedented, right? A widespread closure of, of restaurants across the country. Uh, is there a systemic issue here if they had to pay the claims? So it's it's an interesting one. I mean, the judge has obviously said categorically that doesn't even come into it. Uh, Suntum have come on record and said that they've got the balance sheet to pay these claims no matter which way um, the ruling goes. You know, there are reinsurers that sit behind them as well. Um, and those reinsurers, I, I think, you know, to a large degree are probably pulling the strings. You know, and these European, you know, entities are obviously causing us in South Africa great strife if it is them that are causing our insurers to take such a hard line. So 
is it systemic? I don't think that, I think that all the insurers can afford to pay these claims. We've also gone out and we've approached all the insurers with our significant volume of claims and we've said to them, guys, we understand this. Our clients, in fact, even understand this. We'll offer you a compromise of settlements between 40 to 60% of the value of the claims and we'll even give you options of paying it off. We'll take 50% now and you can then pay the balance off over six months to two years. You know, we've heard about how the banks are so willing to provide, you know, some sort of funding or finance. The banks would, would obviously assist in that situation. Government could step in and, you know, and also participate in it. So we think that we've given them quite an elegant solution to it. And um, yes, it's never been done before, but, you know, they wrote these wordings. They, yes, they didn't consider the consequences, but, you know, their business is to measure risk and to write these wordings. You know, insurers, reinsurers have got some of the re best research facilities in the world. You know, pandemics have been, epidemics and pandemics have been a huge possibility since 2003. You've had MERS, SARS, Ebola. We've infected one of the South African insurers pay an Ebola claim in Sierra Leone, where they put lockdown measures, lockdown restrictions, and and quarantines in place. They never questioned it there because there the value wasn't as high as it is now. now this, that the one, can see round, one can see this is a sort of a big money battle, as it were. Lucanio, you wanted to come in with a comment, a question. Actually, I was going to ask a question, but then I wanted to sort of cover it a bit. But Ryan, in your answer, you mentioned something quite interesting regarding the role of the bigger reinsurance companies, like not the European-based, American-based. So I'm just, for them, obviously, the issue is not just about paying off like people in South Africa. So do you think maybe they've got a bigger concern that if this sets a precedent? I mean, imagine if every restaurant in London had to Actually, I was actually going to ask you as well. There's a global dimension to this, isn't there? Ryan? Uh, yes. So, yes, there's definitely a global dimension to this. Um, the Financial Conduct Authority in the UK has taken, uh, with the agreement uh, of 18, I think it's 18, 17 or 18 insurers, they've, uh, uh, or seven or eight, sorry, they've gone forward uh, and are doing a test case in the UK where they are testing uh, all the wordings that they have. And from that, these insurers will be bound by the ruling of the court. And in that, there are certain of the wordings that are mirror our wordings in South Africa almost identically. And, you know, from that perspective, yes, there could be some precedent set through that. Um, that's due to uh, break, I think, uh, the, we should hear on the judgment by the first week of August. So I think that that will also set some sort of precedent. Um, for us in South Africa, we value UK law. It's not, it doesn't set a precedent, but we value the, the interpretation. So I think it will lean on the reinsurer's view and potentially our local South African insurers as well. The cases in the U.S. are also running hot. Um, and I, don't, I think that those are the major territories. There aren't as many wordings that are as wide as ours in South Africa. So that's why we feel that um, the judgment demonstrated it that um, you know, the insurers have written the cover and they should be paying these claims. Ryan, we've just got one minute to go to the break, but I wanted to ask your, 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 your clients in this hospitality and tourism industry, how badly have they been affected by the very prolonged lockdown? That, that, you know, that's such a relevant question. They are you know, in a dire straits. Uh, we've had several that are close to closing. You know, these guys employ, you know, the tourism sector is one and a half 
you know, million people, you know, not to mention all the indirect jobs, the mass employer of the youth. And the, the kind of the knock-on effect is for every one job that's affected, 10 people are affected. And you think about these lodges and hotels that basically have got communities that surround them, that they are responsible for, that are now being left destitute because of the insurers trying to wriggle out of these contracts. We're going to move on to one of our favorite topics, which is the budget and fiscal policy. In a week in which a group of academic economists, including Lumkile Molnde, signed a petition or a letter asking that the supplementary budget, which we had a couple of weeks ago, not be adopted. So I wanted to ask you, Lumkile, what is the argument that you and the other economists make and why do you oppose Tito Mboweni's budget? It's a very simple argument. Uh, we followed a letter that had been written earlier on uh, towards the end of the year, following the presentation of the medium-term budget policy statement, a letter returned to parliamentarians by the late Professor Penturok uh, for the uh, parliament to reject that medium-term budget policy statement. In the event of the pandemic, we also wrote a letter to the president um, in, May, in April, urging the president uh, that the pandemic requires a huge stimulus, very similar to the World War II, uh, post-World War II stimulus, where, so that we ensure we don't leave people behind because of the impact of the pandemic. We're excited by the president presenting a 500 billion rand stimulus, which we estimate at 10%. But we've seen what has been happening in the past few months that actually very little is trickled through. The supplementary budget shows to us that nothing has been done. Uh, so if you look at the stimulus announced by the president and the flows, what the budget was, uh, was presented tells us, it tells us that actually all that announcement was just um, a statement, not a flow of funds. So South Africa is being pushed far backward. Um, and South African businesses, South African workers, South African um, civil society are being pushed forward because the South African government through the Treasury is undergoing on an enormous austerity, which we argue is going to lead to famine, uh, destitution, and really a lot of the pathologies that we've seen in the past 20 years are going to deepen. So, Lumkile, the argument of the letter is that the 500 billion stimulus package basically doesn't exist or very little of it exists and as a result the budget should not be adopted would i be correct in that interpretation exactly this is also informed that the treasury cannot be relied upon because we mustn't forget that the treasury was part of the state capture project we warned them year after year between 2009 and 2019 that you cannot continue spending when your revenue collection is poor because of economic growth and leakage which was taking place under the zuma regime and treasury under different ministers just continued pouring money so we're saying here's an institution that has really mismanaged our economy uh, that has been part of state capture that now is being captured by an interest group that interest group in the financial sector and it's undermining everything that our society requires, where we need to stimulate uh, investment, 
We need to support business and jobs. We need to ensure that there is a safety net for the poor. That's really our call uh, to action, uh, to influence this discussion so that we don't find ourselves with 50% unemployment, huge poverty and death because the poor intervention on the, on the pandemic and other diseases that we know. I hate to blame the poor treasury, which is really just an instrument of other people's political choices. But nonetheless, I'm going to give it to Lucanio, who penned a very heartfelt comment in response to your letter. And also on the op-ed pages of Business Day carried a very passionately argued piece by the Reserve Bank Deputy Governor, Kuben Naidu, against your letter and in favor of the kind of choices made in the budget. Lucanio, just... Take us through your argument and the arguments that have been running in Business Day's pages about the kind of dilemma that we face as a country. Thank you, Hillary. Like, no, I, might, I, might, I, I could even quote even your own column about it. I think you also like, highlighted the dilemmas that we face as we're looking to borrow money from the IMF and everything else. I mean, the one thing we can't run away from, I mean, if you look at the charts in terms of debt to GDP, our, 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 our budget deficit, you see how it goes from 6% to like 14, 15%, over 15%, the debt to GDP ratio of 80% now from 62%, whatever it was last year. That, I mean, that, that. So when you think about it, I mean, we, we, can't agree, I mean, we can't disagree in terms of what we want to achieve. But I mean, like, no, Lungit is more of an economist than me, but they would always tell me that they would, they, they, no, there's always this, 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 this trade offs when you're in economics because no, there's no financial end of the day. The money has to be paid off somehow. And we have been, and you're going to be got into detail about how we're actually going to fund this. Like, I mean, like, even today on business day, you've got people saying no, our bond market might not actually be able to fund our government. Like, like the, the extra funding that we need, like, there's just not enough. Most, most of the bonds are actually bought by the financial sector in this country. So if you think we're just going to accumulate, accumulate more debt, I think, I think that is a problem with that letter. Like, it's, not, it's not the intention that, 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 that I would have a problem with, because I would agree totally. Like if, if, in, in, in the ideal world, I would agree with everything. Like that we need to invest more. We need to invest more in education. We need to invest more in health. But it's always been a disconnect between what you want and what you actually can do and what you have resources for. And it, I, I don't think it, 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 it goes enough in terms of explaining if we dump this budget, what is the alternative? How do we find all these programs? You know. So, so we we have, we have put on the table that there are ways of reducing uh, unemployment, introducing nuclear energy, intervening on on the healthcare crisis and the poor education offering that we have. That South Africa has not used the central bank as we have seen the U.S. Fed or the U.K. using the central bank. And if there's any inhibition, uh, the parliament is there for us uh, to amend any act. Because this is not just your ordinary look at your cyclical uh, crisis that we've had where the argument could hold. We're arguing here that we're seeing a financial and economic and a health crisis and understanding where we are, we need to think more broadly, more innovatively by borrowing local, by using the central bank as one of the sources. The central bank is not going to put the money for consumption. We're putting the money into infrastructure. So all the bulk that goes in goes into infrastructure. So we expand our capital stock. But because we're doing that, we create jobs. Those that are employed buy uh, housing, buy consumption goods. Our tax revenue goes up. And the, st and the, the state, through SARS, 
gets back its money and you are able to repay the money. So saying, let's think innovatively. This is different times. And if you miss this opportunity, uh, in the next year or so, we'll see 50% unemployment, massive crime levels, uh, and all other pathologies that you all know. And we're asking people to think differently. This must not be an ideological debate as it's been presented. This is not a ideological debate. This is a practical debate about lives, that let's put lives and South Africans at the center than just a financial sector when you know that there is an institution that refuses to think innovatively and do the right thing, as we've seen the Bank of England and the US Fed. So, Lunkila, I'm, I'm actually going to ask Goranon, because, because it seems to me that quite a lot of the 500 billion, it's not a failure to budget for relief, even though we can argue about not enough relief. It's that even some of the relief that has been budgeted for, um, due to a variety of factors, including the complete incompetence of many government departments, have simply not reached people as intended but but one of the pieces of the puzzle warren is um the loan guarantee scheme which is 200 billion of the 500 billion now the interesting thing about the loan guarantee scheme and you can tell us we had figures from the banking industry this week warren the banks yeah. without any help from government have done quite a lot more <laughs> than a lot of government departments have done in terms of providing relief. Just tell us about those figures. Yeah, so, uh, Hilary, the, the overall relief, it started, the bank, in, the commercial bank intervention started with the relief to customers by way of um, uh, customers could take a three-month break from installment, installment relief, that uh, interest would continue to run and they can pay it back at a later date. So it was initially started to deal with the lockdown. And I think, if I recall correctly, uh, there's been about um, 30 80 billion, billion rands worth the, Was the number 30 billion in total that they've already given th by way of payment yes, holidays? 30 billion, uh, th I think it was 30 billion uh, rand. rands worth of yeah. relief in total. And that flowed largely to retail uh, customers. Uh, Individuals. And there's now discussions yeah. happening about how, how and if and how they can extend that uh, relief program. And compared to that, how much has come through the government's, the government-backed loan guarantee scheme? What's the number there? Uh, only 10.6 billion. And what was <laughs> fascinating, so, so there's definitely problems with the scheme. Uh, what was fascinating with the uh, BISA figures is that they actually provided the stats in terms of applications. And of the 34,000 applications the banks have received... This is from um, small businesses. Yeah. 13,000 were, were, were currently being processed, but roughly one-third of them were declined because the businesses did not meet the credit risk criteria of the bank. And that's where we go back into the debate with what was the premise uh, of the guarantee that's been given to the banks in terms of those loans. Yeah. Yeah. Lunkile, I mean... What about the rest of the package, such as it is? I mean, you have issues with the size of the package overall, but in terms of the impact of what has been done, um, has it had the desired effect? Not at all. We must not forget that our economy has failed to be inclusive. So we're learning with this pandemic about how deep and institutionalized is the, is, is the informal sector. So there's an economy that has really been functioning on its own. And in the package that was announced, 
and the requirements to comply were just so horrendous. And therefore, that economy where many people are active has not had the necessary support that's required. Uh, if you look at the employment, unemployment support, the 350, it has not flowed through. So we always knew that if you look at the Southern government, it's an in incapable state. Uh, it is a state that doesn't understand that's operating in, an, in a pandemic and therefore has to be pragmatic. It puts in PE requirements to tourism sector and others. So it was never going to work. It just was never going to work. So we need to think deeply about different ways uh, of really distributing uh, a lot of the support and be innovative about it. But we need also to be mindful that a lot of the stuff that's being done at the moment, which excludes uh, our entrepreneurs worldwide, uh, and employ hundreds, if not thousands of black workers, is shooting ourselves in the foot. So really, there's a lot of stuff that we've done wrong, uh, Hillary. So I need to think differently. Um, we're going to have to wrap it up there, but thank you very much for joining us. and. Uh, Please join us again for another edition of Editing Aloud next week. And in the meantime, stay safe.